Hello and welcome back to the Thundersticks Podcast. I'm your host Ben Kreider and today I'm going to be giving you guys two game recaps. Going to be giving you all the one from Houston and then the home opener against the Philadelphia 76ers. And then I'm going to be doing a little bit of a deep dive into the minute distribution to this point because it's still been pretty weird three games into the season. And you guys want to stick around yet again because I have a very good deal from my good friends over at DraftKings Sportsbook. But just prefacing this, my apologies for not getting it to you the day after for both games really here. Been really busy with some school stuff, so I'm going to try to tighten it down yet again. So we got the next game coming up against the Lakers. Should have that one in time for you all. If not, just make sure to check me. Uh, But anyways, getting right into the first game against the Houston Rockets. I gave the preview for this one. You know, this is a game where you go in and it looks like even, you know, on paper, you're looking at a Rockets team that gets blown out by 24, 25 points against the Timberwolves. And then for the Thunder, you know, their first game against the Jazz was not good either. They only lost by 21, though. So, and I'd, I'd actually probably give the Jazz the upper hand on the Timberwolves anyways. It doesn't really matter after one game. Um, but still, you look at this as two teams that are rebuilding. Clearly, you got KPJ, you have Jalen Green, Sengun's there, Christian Wood's there. But, you know, they don't have stars on this team yet. And then for the Thunder, too, SGA had a bad first game, but you look at him as kind of that star. Josh Giddy is one of those guys, maybe like the Green or the KPJ, a rising guy. And then you have a ton of other young players. I mean, we know what this roster looks like, but they don't have a big man. So you have just a vacant spot there where you're just hoping that everything works out. And you have Christian Wood, you have Alperin Sangoon. And you just hope and pray that it's not like uh, what happened in Utah. But anyways, you kick this game off and they decided to put Isaiah Roby in as the starting five over Derek Favors. So you go out there and then for Houston's end, I mean, they have Christian Wood at the five. Jayshon Tate was also operating out there, but they got the two mainstays in Kevin Porter Jr. and Jalen Green. No John Wall in this game. That's pretty big. Um, but anyways, they go in. Jay Sean Tate starts hitting shots. Josh Giddy fires right back. He had a really good, like, over-the-head dime where he just throws it almost like a bullet pass, too, to Isaiah Roby. And it was a wide-open play. He should have gotten it. Ball just slipped right out of his hand. And... You know, you want to try to make some symbolism or take some symbols away from the game. Maybe that's it. I mean, just a perfect pass by Josh Giddy. There's nobody within three feet of Roby, and he just cannot convert around the rim. So it was not good there, and they just couldn't get anything together past that point. The Rockets, they started the game 7-0. OKC, they were looking to find catch-and-shoot opportunities. Josh Giddy hit one, and then Baisley had a couple of free throws, so it was 7-5. That's pretty tame. You can easily get past that, especially when you're talking about the Houston Rockets, who, you know, typically, as of late, they're not a very good team. So you can get a run, retaliate, and take the lead, but ultimately, it just did not work. So you get those two plays. Giddy has a little hiccup where there's blood, I think, coming out of his nose. Didn't seem to be that big of a problem. He was still back out on the floor, but Houston... They go out again after that stoppage, and they just start hitting three ball after three ball. They use a pair of left corner triples. Both of them go in, and then Christian Wood is working inside, and the thing with Christian Wood is 
he's one of those players, I bet that would be perfect with the Thunder, actually. He's perfect with the Rockets. He'd be perfect with almost any team. If you're looking to be that up-tempo group where you want someone who can shoot the basketball, also can penetrate, I mean, Christian Wood can really do it all. Um, yeah, like he just goes out there. He's going to be a nightmare if you put Roby on him, if you put Derek Favors on him, he's going to exploit you. So he was hitting corner threes, but also you got to look at him as a rebounder. He's John at the glass. If he gets it, he's going up for second chances. He's way more athletic than anybody on the thunder at this point, really. So he was just beasting right around the glass, 7-0 run, take an 11 point lead midway through the first quarter. And then you just start hunting for things. You put the second unit out there. Alexei Pokashevsky goes out and, you know, there really wasn't much there. I mean, there was sort of a highlight because Sengun, he had a little bit of trouble handling the basketball. Poku got like an interception pass almost off of it. He threw like a full court dime to Darius Baisley, had an and one jam, but that was it. You know, the Rockets, they were still up double digits, 34-21 to 21 through the first quarter, and they were just looking to put the nail in the coffin in the second quarter, which doesn't really happen too much for Clutch City. So they go out there, second quarter offense still looks very, very good. They get it to 20 points in the first two minutes of play, and the Thunder... They look to bite back with their rookies. Josh Giddy goes in, driving dish, finds Jeremiah Robinson Earl. He hits a three. Teo hits a corner three. So you're good. You get two shots in. Uh, previously, they were shooting two of 10. So they needed something to click. And that was the one little beam of hope that they had. And it was almost gone. I mean, they had everything set up. They hit the two threes. Houston was going two of seven. They go on a 14-4 run. Uh, It's a 10-point game. But then Houston goes out, and they just hit the craziest stretch of all time. I'm talking, they weren't even playing real basketball. This is like street basketball. People are almost cherry-picking. It's a game of 2K. Maybe that's how you want to put it. You got two guys running in transition all the time. They're already in the corner. They're getting the rebounds every time just because they're bigger. They're more athletic, this and that. Make the outlet. Make that extra pass. Gunning and running. Hitting shot after shot. The Thunder couldn't find anything at all. And they went on a 15-2 run going 6-7 of seven from the field. And I think the one miss was like the second out of those seven shots. So they were just automatic. And a lot of those finishing touches were just the exact same play. Near identical. Left corner three, whether it was KPJ, Jalen Green might have been there. I think Christian Wood definitely was too, but they went three of three from downtown to get there. 23 point lead instantly. It looks like the Thunder were in the driver's seat to make this a close one by halftime. Just got taken right away. And then by halftime, still not much better. 69 to 47 in the Houston Rockets' favor. So they had an uphill battle pinned against them. And OKC, they were shooting pretty bad. They didn't even shoot 40% in the first half, went 14 of 47. It's only 36.2%. From three, they were a bit better. Seven of 20, that's 35%. But when you look at the starters, it was ugly. They shot seven of 26, 26.9%. And then the only guy in double digits happens to be Kenrich Williams with 10 points. Nobody else was making any sort of noise there. That's kind of a bit of a problem. So a lot of issues on the offense for the Thunder. But honestly, the bigger issue was the defense. You cannot let the Houston Rockets score 69 points 
in the half, and they were just going off. They shot 51% in the half. You look at what they were doing from distance, it was even better. They went 10 of 18 there. It was 26 of 51 overall, but does it really matter? Probably not. And the big stat that you kind of want to take away, the rebounds. Christian Wood had 10 rebounds. Jay Sean Tate had 9 rebounds. The Thunder as a collective, they only had... 19 rebounds in the half so those two already tie them they finished with a 32 to 19 advantage in the half when it came to the glass and that leads to a lot more second chance baskets that leads to a lot more opportunities to stir up that fast break leads to a lot more points going for Houston so they were doing solid Christian Wood he was on track to set some record personally. I mean, he had 24 points and 10 rebounds already, and he was playing like a small forward out there. He was sniping it from downtown, but then the very next play, he'd just be right around the block, low post, beasting and feasting anytime he chose. 10 of 14, that's what the shot chart looked like for him. And then Jay Sean Tate was amazing as well. And he's not 6'10", you know, he's one of those guys who's more like 6'7", 6'8". It didn't matter. He was still getting right to the basket. He had 12 points going 4 of 6 and had those 9 rebounds like I talked about. So the second half looked ugly. Obviously, there's been some comebacks uh, from the Thunder where they can actually get away and surmount a deficit in the 20s, but they need to do it immediately. You need to go out second half, brand new team. Honestly, it just didn't happen. I mean, Houston rolls right back out there and seamlessly just right back to action. 10-2 run, 30-point advantage, and it looked like a Harlem Globetrotters game in the third quarter. You would see even more fast breaks, which was working in the second quarter, and they definitely should have been pushing the tempo because OKC couldn't strangle them at all. It was pretty bad. Um, but they go out there and fast break. You have the same setup as usual, maybe a corner sitter or whatnot. But then you give the ball to like Sangoon or Christian Wood or just some big man. And he just start throwing alley-oop passes. And Sangoon threw one up. He's like left or no, he's right elbow. And he throws this like over the shoulder pass alley-oop to Jalen Green who's driving left baseline. He, he had his head at the rim easily head at the rim he almost threw it down and I forgot if it was on Roby or Baisley but oh my goodness even though he didn't convert you could still put on a poster it was a beautiful beautiful setup there and every single play they just mustered up something they could throw really stupid alley-oops someone would get the ball and throw it in and then on defense just stupid things as well like you'd have a wide open driving lane for the thunder and then they just swarm you, block, two succession blocks in a row that led to one of those alley-oops, I remember, and then also just let them play shoot-around, they were not that impressive from three, so keep it coming, if SGA gets a high ball screen, you're gonna hard hedge, you're gonna double for a minute, and you're not gonna let SGA get to his spot, so you have to force those you know, they're good shots. Percentage-wise, you need to be taking these shots, but OKC was not hitting them, and it just kept digging them in a bigger, bigger hole. So they end up going 3 of 12 um, to start out the frame, and for Houston, they're making all these stupid plays. Obviously, they're not getting a 10-2 run again. They were missing shots, but there was no um, seize the moment for the Thunder, so still really a 30-point game. By the time the Rockets had 100, 
OKC had 66, so they actually were continuing to build and build, and by the end of the third quarter, they were up 173, so it was pretty much over. You go into that fourth quarter, and there's really no stakes in this. You want to put out those bench unit guys that you might not see, so that's exactly what he does. He puts Poku in the game. Ty Jerome gets his first minutes after not playing in the opener. Trey Mann's there. Vit Kredge got to play six or so minutes. And it was kind of just a shoot-around session, and it was a very, very ugly one. I don't really, I, I don't use that term lightly. Like, whenever I typically complain about the team or I have some criticism, it was pretty bad. And they just had really good open shots uh, that just were not going in. Poku, he actually had five consecutive to begin the fourth quarter, so that's the positive. But you go into the final eight or so minutes of the game, you might throw a pass or two, um, but not a lot of activity, not much ball movement, and not a lot of success. They had the right idea. They needed to be taking the shots they were taking, so you can't fault them there. But you'd see air balls, you'd see brick after brick, and you could not live with that. This was actually the worst shooting quarter they had, even though it was the fourth quarter and there was little intensity from both sides. So they went 6 of 22, that's 27.3%, and then 4 of 14 from downtown, 28.6%. Final buzzer sounds, Houston wins 124 to 91. So they get the 1-1 one one split, and then the Thunder, they move on to the home opener at 0-2. But the big thing that I saw from the game, Houston was just great defensively they had the correct game plan we knew coming in eventually this would happen but you know if you have a center or really a lack thereof you're gonna see a lot of tests and you're gonna see a lot of hard hedges you're gonna see a lot of people elect to actually double SGA when he uh goes inside whether it's up top or you know when he hits the paint let someone take it from the corner and that's what Houston was doing to begin the game and SGA never had any kinds of breathing room he would get that high ball screen and he'd already have two faces right in front of him he could kick it out to the top of the key but no one was really hitting from the top of the key so it made a problem and it led to some shots being forced for SGA's case he tried to create things from downtown because inside it was just not there for him and it was not a good game so SGA shot one of six I mean as a team the Thunder struggled big time they shot 14 of 43 from downtown. That's 32.6%, by the way. Um, that's like almost half of their shots, though, coming from three, and it was just not going in. And then also the issues where the paint was just kind of clogged. It almost had them have more turnovers than they did assists. They had 21 assists on the game. They had 19 turnovers, though, and that's just honestly unacceptable. And then you look at what they're doing on defense— I can't really blame them. I mean, they were just getting outclassed. Like, you would see a lot of transition buckets where you really couldn't get into your spots anyways. Uh, but they had 21 fouls on the game, too. So they were trying to get a bit physical. Maybe some frustration fouls. I know SGA didn't seem happy in the post-game interviews. I don't know why you would be, because this was a blowout to arguably the second or third worst team in the Western Conference. Uh, but yeah, so it was ugly. I mean, you look at what Houston did. All the props goes to them. They did their homework. They did exactly what they needed to do, and they did it in great, great fashion. They get Christian Wood out there. He has 31 points, goes 13 of 19, 
and has 14 rebounds. Eric Gordon off the bench. We know Eric Gordon's penetration game is like on another level. Does it again, has 22 points, almost single-handedly inside. And then you have the two guards, KPJ, he has 18 points, had 10 assists, by the way. And Jalen Green, he actually wasn't that crazy. I mean, I expected Jalen Green to go out there and maybe even drop a 20-piece against this team. Did not happen. He strums out, has like a 4 of 14 game, I believe. So he wasn't a big highlight. They had Jay Sean Tate, though, who did help out due to his first half double-double. Now, when you look at what the Thunder did in this game, not good. Their best player was not SGA, was not Josh Giddy, was not a starter, was not even getting minutes, really, in the debut either. Mike Muscala was the best person in a Thunder jersey on Friday night. He had 13 points on the game and played 12 minutes. He just played his role. He didn't play out of this world like what might have been necessary. He just had an, a good game. And that's all it took for this one because there were a lot of issues. So he just goes out, goes 5 of 7, and he just does himself. I mean, whether it's a transition play, he just hides behind, gets a top of the key shot, sets a screen, has to go back out, maybe go to the mid-range. He did it all. I mean, he had two threes go in, took um, three on the night, so two of three there, and then just the inside game. You know, if you're looking to win, you're going to play Mike Muscala more minutes. This is uh, pretty obvious, I think. Like, they had to sideline him because they wanted to see more of the younger bigs on the roster. But Muscala was perfect next to SGA, and he's perfect in this system. So maybe he'll get more minutes moving forward. I don't know. He got 12, though, and he definitely made the most of them. Next up, though, SGA. He also tied Muscala with 13 points. Went 6 of 15 to get there, though. And like I said, 1 of 6 from 3 that is not very good. And you check out the rest of the stats with SGA. Yeah, he has the 13 points. Pretty bad efficiency, but you want to see him distributing the basketball. If he's not scoring, he can affect the games in other ways. But because of how Houston played on defense, you couldn't see that side of SGA. You couldn't see that side from really anybody on the roster. I think the team high in assists was like four points because of this. There could not be one centralized ball handler on the team. So he had two assists on the game and it was not pretty. So long story short, Houston put a lock on SGA and this might have been his worst performance um, obviously this year, but even dating back, I mean, he hasn't had a game where you watch it and you just, he just can't break free because when he tries to create, he gets the open looks, but they just were not hitting. And that's kind of what uh, is a bit painful there. But Going beyond SGA, Kenrich Williams was good. Another bench piece, just like Muscala here. But Kenny goes out there, gets 12 points, 4 rebounds, and 3 assists. This is how Kenrich Williams plays. Last season, he was under the radar. Probably one of the most underrated players in the NBA. You have to remember his contract. It's not 3 years, 6 million anymore. It's 2 years, 4 million. But $2 million for Kendrick Williams is an absolute steal, and he could contribute for a playoff team right now. So if anyone's looking to trade for a Ty Jerome or someone at the bottom of the depth chart, you're going to try to package Kendrick Williams in the deal because he might actually be a better impact player for you in the long run uh, just because you can put him 
in a 10-15 minute role and he's going to give you this stat line where he gets a baker's dozen has four rebounds and three assists and that's not even factoring in that he's a very good defender as well so he shot a lot in this game he had 10 tries five of them went in and then he went two of three from beyond the arc had 10 in that first half like i mentioned i think it's pretty interesting though i mean he has the 10 clearly was the best scorer but the plug got pulled on him. He, Mark Dagnall wanted to see the younger guys, which is understandable, but he only had eight minutes in that second half despite uh, the large push that he made in the first 24. Poku, kind of the exact opposite where he got most of his minutes at the back end, whether it's the third or fourth quarter, had 17 minutes, 10 points, seven rebounds, and two assists. You gotta look deeper into the numbers. He ends up shooting four of nine on this game. Two of two inside, had very good drives. But he went two of seven from downtown. And it was just more of that like shoot around from the fourth quarter I was mentioning, where he gets it, immediately tees a shot up, and you know, either you hate it because it's not going in, or he cannot miss a single time. So I'm okay with him taking the shots. I might have wanted to see him a little bit earlier. Then the fourth quarter, just because you want to see the boomer bust early. And if it is a boom, you keep him in. If it's a bust, then you silence him. They do it at a point where it really didn't matter in this game. But it's all right. You still got to see some Poku minutes in this one. And then Trey Mann, too. He has eight points going three of five overall. Two of three from downtown. Looked like a good microwave scorer after the impressive performance uh, in the debut. And then you look at the starting group, not a lot was going on. Baisley goes one of seven for five points. Josh Giddy goes two of six for six points. And Lou Dort only scores eight points going three of nine. And it was ultimately a game where the Thunder starters went 13 of 42. That is 30.9%. So pretty ugly. Then you go on to the Philly game where you get to go to the Paycom Center and you get a chance to get back into the win column. And I'm going to tell you guys all about that game. But first, I want to let you guys know about my good friends over at DraftKings Sportsbook. The NBA is back. And at DraftKings Sportsbook, an authorized sports betting partner of the NBA, the key to victory is a strong starting five. New customers can bet just $5 on any NBA game to win their game. And if they do, you win $200 in free bets. And to make it all better, if you would like to, you can make a same game parlay. Here's what you have to do. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code TBPN. Bet just $5 on any NBA team to win their game and win $200 in free bets if they win. You win with promo code TBPN this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an authorized sports betting partner of the NBA. Must be 21 or older in New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call one 800 gambler but guys moving right along to the next game for the thunder they go back to the paycom only at a preseason game there no regular season contest to this point 
and they get a Philly team that's kind of in a state of just confusion. Ben Simmons, you got that drama going on. Joel Embiid, he was a bit banged up going into the game. He was listed as questionable. He comes in and actually is active, so he played in the game. Um, But you could see them a bit in a state of disarray, so this could be a game that you could sneakily take and get on the right track with a W. But anyways, you go out here, and it was kind of just like the Houston game, where there was an early push from the other side. Philly goes out, they have an 8-2 run in the first three minutes, but the Thunder were still in it to win it. First strategy they had, just like everything, you run the offense through SGA, give him a high ball screen, and let him work. And it was working. You get the Derek Favors pops, some of them goes in, you know, some go out, you kind of live with the results. Uh, and then once the favor shots started going in, the perimeter got opened up and they were really back into the game. So you get that going, Lou Dort hits a three, single possession game, you are right there. And then it's a back and forth where Philly's hitting shots, but also the Thunder, they're going at it. They're getting shots for everybody. You get layups from Baisley. Josh Giddy got into this system, also had another one coming, I think, from SGA. And that made it to where the first five buckets were from completely different members from this Thunder team. So it's one, 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 and one. Perfect distribution. Kind of had so many options on the floor that Philly couldn't really handle them. And I think that's uh, really what kept them in line here. But for the 76ers, their offense was just running through one guy. And it was Seth Curry. He had the team's first 14 of 18 points. He's got DHOs galore. You have double screens set off the ball. Sometimes he did have the ball in his hands, but they were just letting him get shots whenever he felt like it. And it was working. And OKC, they continued to kind of test him. You know, you had the first wave of bench rotations to hopefully sway things. You think Seth Curry comes out. He sticks in for the remainder of the quarter, and he still is dominating. He hits jumper after jumper. Final minute of the quarter, he hits two straight threes. 23 points in the first quarter. He's playing with Wilt Chamberlain by the end of 12. And OKC almost single-handedly got outscored by Seth Curry. They had 26 points. And if it weren't for an Alexei Pokashevsky like buzzer beater, they would have had 24 points. So neck and neck, you got Seth Curry right there. And Curry... You know, you couldn't stop him. Doc Rivers made a good call in keeping him in. He shot 8 of 10, went 6 of 7 from 3. That was a career-tying stat for him. He's only made 6 threes in a game. Um, But yeah, they were right there. And the Thunder, they were only down 36 to 26, which is good, all things considered. When you take into account, you have Seth Curry, who could not miss a jumper to save his life. So you go into that second quarter. You're looking to sway things. You're looking to silence Seth Curry, and you're looking to make a major run. And OKC's bench mob made it interesting. 5-2 run. That's going to get you back into single digits. Um, but then you kind of have this stalemate for a couple minutes where no one is making shots, and the first person to take that seal off the basket, Philadelphia 76ers, get their double-digit ticket right back, and they are churning. Just continuous baskets from them turns more into a back and forth, honestly, where OKC, they're heating up in the final uh, swing of things. I'd say like final four or five minutes uh, in the quarter. 
Um, you have Josh Giddy. I think this is one of the bigger plays. He hits a floater, and then on the very next play, this is like a fast break, might have been off a steal, but Baisley's driving in from the right side. He makes one of his hop steps, which he, he does it all the time. Like when he makes a, stop, a hop step, though, he's going to take the shot 99.9% of the time. Instead of it, though, he sees an open Josh Giddy at the left wing. He makes a beautiful kick out to him, goes in. I think Giddy had his foot on the tape, though, so it was ruled a two-point shot, but it was big. I have not seen a play like that from Bays in a while, so I was really excited to see that. And then also, Josh Giddy hitting that jumper, too, made it very, very fun. So they get back into it where it is a single-digit game. And then SGA at the end of the half, he has a 7-2 closing run. Scores seven consecutive points where it's step back threes, getting to the foul line, or just hitting layups to get there. Ends it with a 27-foot step back. 58-51 is the halftime score. Thunder are down seven points. But that's the best first half they've had in the first three games. You go out there, 44% from the floor. 8 of, or excuse me, 9 of 10 from the line, so even better than what I uh, initially stated. You look at the 3 ball, not good, 4 of 16 from there, but they were able to recuperate just a little bit of that because SGA was in the zone. He had 13 points, a lot of open kickouts were also generated, I think it might have been 6 assists at the time. Don't uh, quote me on that though, but there were a lot of kickouts that came from it. And then you look at Philly. Seth Curry was still the number one option. He didn't score in the second quarter, so he still just had his 23 points, but you had a second star in Joel Embiid who came out there. Really didn't have to show much in the first quarter. Goes out in the second where you kind of facing a small ball team, and he starts reaping the rewards of it. So he had double digits at the half, and he also helped out on the inside. So, you know, from three... Obviously, Seth Curry going, what, 6 of 7 will boost you. They shot 47.6% from 3, so 10 of 21. But overall, they went 21 of 43. A lot of that has to do with the interior activity. But you go into the third quarter, 7-point game, really just a toss-up. If someone gets hot, you can take the lead. And SGA started making some strides. Got right to work, had two free throws instantly and then hit a 10 foot fadeaway jumper six point game very next play Baisley hits a layup it's a four point game and they are knocking on Philly's doorstep they got by it though they hit two straight jumpers got a bit of space then the thunderstorm back with layups now it's a standstill from like six to eight points Josh Giddy hits like his third floater of the game by this point leads at four again OKC's still trying to make those baby steps. Didn't have any inflicting wounds until like the four minute mark ish. They get the game down to three. SGA's taking shots from Matisse Thibel. They want one on ones. There's no screens necessary. SGA just blows right by him. He doesn't look like a defender. Doesn't look like he's on Lou Dort's level by any means. And it's just bucket after bucket. So he gets it to single digits. Uh, actually, a single possession. But then it gets inflated. Two minutes left. There's like a nine-point lead for the 76ers. And then SGA gets right back into his mojo where he's driving right by people, stepping back, hit some post layups and actually some free throws. And the final play, you got to end it with a bang. 
finds Mike Muscala off the driving dish. He sticks it in 87 to 78 going into the fourth quarter, which is still not very bad. When you check the final two uh, games or the past two, fourth quarter was kind of just where Mark Dagnall makes the substitutions. You were keeping the starters in for Sunday's contest. So you go up for the fourth, you get Jeremiah Robinson Earl. He slams it off a Josh Giddy assist. They're looking like they could make another drive for it, but Philly said no to that. A lot of the momentum just got taken, stripped away from them. Baisley gets swatted. This is like a Sports Center esque play too. I think it was four on there um, last uh, last night or maybe this morning. However you want to cut it. Uh, but then there's also a team turnover. Momentum is now gone. 76ers were not missing. 11-0 run gets him up to 18. And then Mark Dagnalt starts going just full on. Let's go. He puts an SGA, puts on Lou Dort, and they were looking to get something. Two minute stall out happens. Crickets. You gotta get rolling though when you're down 18. So Kenrich Williams hits a pull up. Lou Dort was also in there. Uh, but nothing nothing big. I think the best play they got in that fourth quarter was a Josh Giddy and one layup. Might have been with his left hand too. He drove in right side, took the contact. That's one I loved, but you got the 76ers still hitting shots on offense. So you get the big plays, but you also need to play kind of similar on the other side. So back and forth wasn't really meant to be. You go into the final two minutes with a 110-97 lead for the 76ers. So they're up 13 points with two minutes. You can't possibly cough this up. But there's still some breathing room. Now it's gone because SGA blows a wide open layup, goes to the other side. Another 10-15 seconds are drained. You get a fast break opportunity off of that. And Josh Giddy's driving in for a two-handed rim grazer. Joel Embiid's slashing in, I think, uh, Giddy's driving from the left side, Embiid's coming from more of that middle, so he gets him on the wrist, but also, Embiid's a big guy, he's, he has a lot of speed on it too, to catch up there, they clash bodies, and Josh Giddy, you know, he misses the dunk, obviously there's a foul, but he lands awkwardly, pretty much on the right corner of the stanchion, so it's not like middle, where it might get pretty bad, there is some wiggle room there, but you know, that's an awkward fall, of course, so he lands around there, you don't have any major injury, Giddy was able to kind of brute force his way through it, but yeah, it looked like an awkward fall, did not look pleasant, he was shaken up by the play, and then for Joel Embiid, I mean, he's also crashing to the floor, Philly's announcer, um, my goodness, congratulations to him. I mean, the play happens and Giddy goes up. He took the worst fall easily, easily takes the worst fall in Joel Embiid. And, you know, I forgot exactly what the quote was, but it's like, yeah, I could care less about Josh Giddy, like with his injuries. Like, yeah, with all due respect, I could care less. Um, with Giddy looking like he fell awkwardly. He cares more about Joel Embiid, who enters the game questionable. Whatever. Even if that's the case, dude, keep it to yourself. And also, you care less about Giddy getting hurt. Whatever. Might have been a slip of the tongue, but that's still not something great to say on live television. But that happened. I was not happy when I heard that. I think a lot of people on Twitter are also fuming. Like, you just don't say that. But anyways, that goes on. He hits the two free throws, so you know, just pretend the dunk went in. Don't think there was any substantial injuries to either of them. So that's also great. 
But on the very next play, they go out there. They're looking to make a full court press. They pin them at the right baseline or the sideline uh, right before they cross the timeline too. But have to make a pass, errant pass, goes right to Josh Gideon. They're up and running. They push the tempo. They end up finding, I believe it was SGA out there. And the ball instantly goes to SGA. Now he's the one taking it past the timeline. And he drags in like two, three defenders off the drive. This is what the, you know, he's been baiting them all game. I Like, there's no other way to put it. He was baiting them. And Josh Giddy sneaks in left corner. He ends up getting the basketball. Shot goes in. And now you have it to where the game is kind of in single digits. It's like an eight-point game, anyone's ball game now. You try to enforce the uh, full-court press again. Wasn't meant to be. They find a wide-open Seth Curry at the left corner. Full circle. He sticks the three-point shot, makes it an 11-point game, and makes it a 76ers victory. They take it 115-103, to and that's that. So Philly goes 2-1 and off of that one. OKC, on the other hand, are 0-3 with the loss standing ovation from the thunder uh fan base after the game though this was one where major major improvements popped up to make it a close one against a team that's you know they don't have ben simmons but they're still not a joke even with that so it was a very good um, performance from them and because of it you know you have this deal where guys that normally were out there in the first two like ty jerome vit Kredge, among other guys they didn't get to play they only had an 11 man rotation and the other ones you're looking at 13 14 names guys like aaron wiggins and paul watson might even get there nope didn't hear a peep from them so just the mainstays for the most part okc they were good inside this was a major victory now let's say seth curry wasn't hitting threes do i think joel Embiid could have just forced uh, force buckets in you know force feed Embiid, get points they definitely could have but i'm gonna take it at face value okc won the points in the paint value 54 to 38 three point shooting was ultimately what killed them though they shot eight of 31 25.8 percent Still okay, though, because they were working in the mid-range, they were working inside, and they were working on distributing the basketball. 24 assists in this game, 11 turnovers. Game I talked about uh, with the uh, Rockets, 21 assists to 19 turnovers. So this assist ratio was a big, big step up. For the 76ers, they were cooking everywhere on the floor, 46.6% overall, and then from three, they shot 41.5% hit 14 threes during the game, and then got to the line at will. 20 attempts for them. They hit 16 of those tries. Seth Curry only had 28 on the game, which I think is a moral victory considering what he did in the first 12 minutes. I would have assumed that you know he'd go off or something, but nope, just 28. And then you look at what Joel Embiid did. I talked about the first half. He clinches 10 points. He gets 22 points at the end, 9 rebounds, and 6 assists. So he was distributing a little bit here and there. Uh, I'll take it, though. You know, I would not have been surprised if Joel Embiid was to drop 40 points or something in the game. You know, 30 and 10, kind of what we saw from Christian Wood, maybe from different areas. But anyways... Uh, you know, he ends up not doing it, so it's okay. Just chalk it up as 22 and 10, or 22 and 9, and then move on from there. But for the Thunder, I mean, they had a couple of really good players. SGA's number one. 
He has 29 points, 6 rebounds, 8 assists, plays 39 minutes, so he was out there for most of the game, but he definitely should have been. I mean, he was the number one influencer on this contest, really for both sides. And I say that because unlike Curry, where he's going for 12 minutes and then stops, or like Embiid, where he kind of had to pick it up in the back end, this was just constant pressure being applied from SGA. And he made the game interesting from a lot of different levels because, you know, a lot of his game comes from that dribble drive, and he was doing great on penetration layups he'd literally take close shots where his head is looking if he's looking straight up you know he's like dead center under the rim he's taking these shots over Tobias Harris like it's nothing clashing into bodies to make shots go in and getting to the charity stripe at will he got 12 tries at the line hit 10 of them he went one of six from three and it didn't matter you still go out of this being extremely happy with SGA because guess what if he shoots three of six or four of six in this game he's posting elite level numbers and he already did with 29 points so didn't even need to tap into that third level that was a concern off the Houston game if he can't shoot from three maybe his streak is just over but no he influences the game even without the three ball because he can get to the stripe so maybe just two out of three makes it lethal and when once you go to three of three then you just got to get out of the way you got to leave the arena because SGA will pop off especially given the role he has with this team but I think the big thing Philly you know they were actually letting screens go on not a lot of hard hedging there they just wanted to see how plays broke down and honestly they just broke down um, with SGA's involvement you know you see him slash right by and he's gone and then even without the high ball screens he was cooking up Matisse Thibault like it was a breeze it was for him. You know, Matisse didn't really show much pressure the entire night, and not a lot of pressure from anybody was really thrown his way. So that's why he was just really, really good finding the basket. And I think that's why Josh Giddy was as well. He also was penetrating, and not a lot of activity was made on the interior. He didn't have to get to the foul line a lot like SGA did. He just outright scored it. I mean, he'd blow by his man at the top of the key get maybe one foot inside the free throw line and just go up for a floater. His floater is beautiful. I hyped up Trey Mann as probably the best floater guy in the draft class. I don't know anymore. I think the softest touch award goes to Josh Giddy. In terms of floaters, you could still make an argument, but he is really swaying me right now because his floaters have looked so, so good. Does it effortlessly too because he's six foot nine and he's playing against people that are like three, four inches shorter than him. I mean, you get by him. There's not really a chase down blocking the agenda. And for defenders, you can't really step up on Josh Giddy because he makes wacky passes. And this even goes for guys maybe at the wing looking to help out. He's going to know. And he's going to know if the guy from the corner is planning on switching over. And then he'll hit the corner. So all options are on the table until that final split second with Josh Giddy. And that's why you get wide open floaters with him. And that's why he converts so well. So he gets 19 points really working on the inside entirely. He got a couple shots up from uh, from like the mid-range and the three, of course, but I'm looking at the inside from it, and then you have eight rebounds from him and seven assists. Almost gets the triple-double in his third NBA game, which is really just hard to envision, honestly. Third game in the league, like we knew he could probably accomplish it this soon, Probably not that soon, right? But he goes out there, looks like a beast, and then even on defense, leads a team with four steals, has some major ones 
Uh, I think most of them came in that second and third quarter, but he still had the one in the fourth that led to some big action. So he looked great on defense. This was a game where I give him an A+. Also have to give SGA an A+. And Giddy was doing the typical stuff where he just made correct reads on kickouts when he drove in. But also, he'd be at the top of the key, didn't even have to run inside. And he'd get a screen, would just kind of chill at the perimeter. He'd wait and see the reaction. You have Derek Favors going to maybe like the right baseline for a 15-footer. And then you have Lou Dort also involved in the play at like the uh, left wing. So yeah, left wing and then let's say favors is um, right baseline, right? So you end up getting that screen and then he just sits there and he waits. And he just eyes Lou Dort for like a split second as the play is developing. Gets a bite from the dude who is supposed to be guarding favors. He's get that tiny little glimpse uh, and he's able to see that reaction from the opposition Kicks it over to Derek Favors. Gets a really wide open look for the 30-year-old veteran there. So he just makes those veteran plays. And we still have not yet to see the best from his game. So I'm really impressed by him. Lou Dort, he was not impressive from three again. Just like SGA. Had to match him going one of six. But still had 13 points. And when you look at the 13 points, a lot of that spread just comes around the interior. He had to fight for all his baskets just off a of driving inside. That's why they won that points in the paint battle, honestly. But also on defense, he was great. Didn't show up. He only had one true steal in the game. But there's plays where, like, in the half court, I, I forgot who the ball handler was. My bad. But he just crosses the timeline, kind of in between the timeline and also that right sideline. So he's kind of screwed. He's losing a bit of space. But Lou Dort is just stalking him. And then mid-dribble, he just goes right in, prowls snatches the basketball away kind of a loose ball dive and he ends up getting a tie up there and I think that's kind of one of the major energy plays from the fourth that might have helped them later on just keep that energy and keep everybody in the game Lou Dort is the energizer bunny when it comes to that stuff so that's why I love him you know, he didn't really um, play like you would like to see him. You want to see that three ball go in. He looked like a very prominent catch and shoot guy, but he has yet to look like it right now. I think it's just going to take time because, you know, I think SGA might even be shooting worse than him right now if you want to compare things. They're both going to be fine. Ludort's going to be fine. We'll see him drop 20 and probably a game or two. Kenrich Williams, I don't know if we're going to see him drop 20 in a game because I don't think he's going to get the minutes but he got a lot in this one and this is going to kind of segue into my next point in a little bit here but you know they were given looks to guys like Kenrich Williams and guys like Mike Muscala a lot more freely in this one than the games prior they wanted to see more from the vets when it was close you know when it's a blowout of course you're going to throw out the young guys it doesn't really matter about the vets right but when it was the fourth quarter Kenny Hustle was in the game. They needed the energy from him. They needed the defense, and he was pretty good. 21 minutes, dropping eight points, two rebounds, shot three of four overall. You just place him wherever you want, and he is going to convert for you, and that's why they probably kept him around for clutch time. Poku and Trey Mann, they were the main guys who kind of lost out of that battle because you got guys like Kenrich playing. Alexei Pokusevsky, he played seven minutes. Trey Mann played 10. Poku went 2 of 5. Mann went 1 of 5. So they're kind of used to that 15-20 minute range. Did not get it. Maybe they'll get it in the next one. They play the Warriors tomorrow at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. OKC is 0-3. 
Golden State is 3-0, and they have a lot of fun guys on that roster, so you want to check that out. But first, I just want to talk a little bit about the rotation uh, that we've seen so far, and I talked about it in the Utah game. The main headliners, you have Roby, he only played 14 in this game, Trey Mann played 15, Poku played 15, and then you had Darius Baisley take 31 points, and that's the one where you're kind of thinking like, hey, wait a minute, like, how exactly does that happen? Um, Because you want to see more from Poku. Trey Mann, I think, is more understandable, maybe even with Isaiah Roby, but I think the original mindset was, you know, Poku might genuinely snatch the starting gig, and it was not even close uh, to begin things. So it it looks like there was a complete, not power shift really, but you look at it, and you can you can tell it was the one and two. Darius Baisley's number one. Then you have Alexei Pokushevsky at number two. And then in the Houston Rockets game, kind of much of the same. I mean, this is one where Bays only got 18, so it was a clean cut where Bays got 18, Poku got 17, Poku drops 10 points, Baisley drops five points. Really not impressed by either of them, to be honest, in that game. I think shooting-wise, they're both bad. Uh, maybe some bad decisions in there, too. The big one, though, was Philly, where you have Bays drop 32 minutes. He's the clear guy right there. And you have Poku play seven minutes, and they're like mean- not meaningless minutes. There were no meaningless minutes in that Philly game, but they're like second, third quarter, you know? So he wasn't really ingrained in the rotation for this one. And for other guys, too, you know, they weren't really getting the looks that they're accustomed to. Trey Mann dips down to 10 minutes. I think that's more understandable because... You want to look at the guards, but also the guy that probably would have been taking those minutes, Ty Jerome, he didn't get to play. He didn't get to play in the first game either. He only got minutes in the blowout against Houston, got 15 minutes, and he shot 0 of 5 going 0 of 4 from downtown. And the sample size is not big enough for anybody. The only thing you can look at is who is playing, who is not playing. And the big things that I see are the vets like Kenrich Williams and Mike Muscala are getting the consistent minutes where the guys that are kind of more youthful are getting placed in the shadows. And there's a lot of competition here. There's not enough minutes and it's understandable, but some of the picks are kind of eye-opening. I don't think Poku would have been one of those guys initially. You pick him in the first round, 17th pick, trade up to get him. You already put him in the blue system. So why would you double dip there? Because he looked good in the with the blue. Post blue, he was a million times better than what he was you probably want to see him start with serious NBA minutes and hope he gets the kind of momentum he had post break uh he's not really getting that opportunity though and then for a guy like Ty Jerome who also is with the blue and should not be going back to blue because he is consistent on a night-to-night basis he's not playing at all um so those are the two big ones like what's going on with Poku what's going on with Ty Jerome uh, but also, just what's going on with the main group of guys? Because Baze is dropping 30 minutes a game. People like Josh Giddy, I mean, he's playing 33, 34 minutes. He takes priority over everybody. I'm sorry. You know, if he's looking like a beast, you're playing him 48 minutes a game. And you just kind of have to live with it a little bit. Um, but you still kind of have to broaden that scope out to some of the other guys like we've talked about. And the minute distribution, I'll go over it one more time. I mean, in number five, Kenrich Williams is technically playing more than what the starting five would be just because you don't really have a traditional one like Isaiah Roby for example I don't think I mentioned it but like he didn't even play last game so he's not really safe anymore we thought he was gonna be 
contending or not even contending just like he would get the center minutes over favors in some scenarios that's not really the case anymore and for favors I mean he wasn't playing all that often Kenrish Williams is placing 20 a game though which he deserves Teo is playing just around 16 that's like a 10 minute drop off from last year favors is at 16 Jeremiah Robinson Earl's at 16 which you love to see Ty Jerome's out of the rotation which you don't love to see but also that's that brutal cut you have to make and then Muscala's at 14 he's actually playing more than Poku is he's only playing 13 minutes right now and you want to see more from him Trey Mann's at 13 Roby's at 12 but also not consistent enough really Dex out of the rotation Kredgy's out of the rotation Ty Jerome's out of the rotation and then you kind of just have to flip-flop you know you thought Mike Muscala was not going to play now it looks like he's playing you thought that maybe you'd start looking at guys like Kenrich Williams as a trade piece or he wouldn't play in the sake of guards or you'd see maybe some extra minutes go in Ty Jerome's way in the sake of like a three guard lineup but it's just not happened and I think the big uh, surprise is probably Bays clocking in with 27 minutes a game and really when you throw out the outlier and that's the big outlier when you take out the Rockets one it's more like 32 a game so he is taking big chunks of minutes and that's why you're seeing some people take cuts are they going to play for the blue think Crutchy's a no-brainer he should be recalled uh if he has not already been actually I take it back he got recalled today and then you look at other guys where maybe it's not as obvious you know you have Wiggins there already you have Paul Watson Jr. they obviously are going to be understudies if a Poku's playing in their minutes let's say Poku plays there which would be a, a curveball right and it's odd because you know, you could play some of these guys with OKC Blue, but it's not like they're G League level players. Like Poku, he could play like garbage anywhere. Like, yeah, he has up and down nights. I don't think it's worth putting him at the, the G League again. Um, same goes for Ty, like I talked about earlier. But you got to make the cuts because the rotation can't be 13, 14 players. You have to kind of keep it around 11 or 12 maybe. And then even then, with that rotation, you kind of start screwing people over like a Poku or a Trey Mann, really. I don't think they're worth throwing down there. So do they have to make moves? I don't know. We'll probably put this under a microscope uh, in the next coming games and weeks, maybe even months. But there's going to be some people going to the OKC Blue, and it's going to be some head-scratching calls because I love them to death. I think they deserve minutes with a big stage. But you almost have to filter them through because even the draft picks here, like you look at Giddy. Obviously, he's playing 33, 34 a game. You look at Trey Mann, and then you look at Jeremiah Robinson Earl. I think Jeremiah Robinson Earl is not as much of a wild card as Trey Mann is. So maybe Trey Mann goes to the OKC Blue, but still, he's looked elite as a shot creator. So do you want to make that risk of sending him down? You look at the point guard position, Crutchy might already be a ball handler. Xavier Simpson, does he carry as much weight? Absolutely not. But he's still there. You drafted a lot of shot creators already. Michael Benajay is in the mix. And then also, I think they picked up two other guards in the draft. Um, but it's going to be a roster crunch everywhere. And they didn't get enough front court with the blue either. So I don't know. It's going to be weird for the blue. It's going to be weird for the Thunder. It's going to be another game of analysis 
when they take on the Golden State Warriors tomorrow. And I should get you guys a game recap for that one, so make sure to stay tuned. Other than that, though, guys, that is going to do it for this episode. Thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you all next time. See ya.